There's an episode of the History Channel's reality TV show. Uh, it was about a Las Vegas uh, pawn shop. I'm sure you probably have seen this. A man brought in a violin, and he asked for an appraisal. According to the man's story, he had recently purchased a piece of property that included a house and a barn. Shortly after purchasing this, he went out to the barn and he found an old chest. I mean, that's who wouldn't want to do that, right? I mean, that's great. <laughs> Go and find an old chest, and it's gold. And you're like, okay, you pay for the house. But in the, in the chest, he discovered a violin that was tucked safely inside. And the violin, on the violin, he dusted off, he found a word. Guess what the word was? Stradivarius. Yeah, wow, I know. You imagine finding a Stradivarius in the barn that you just purchased. So, what a gift. So, the man was hoping that the Stradivarius was worth millions of dollars. However, after he takes it to the pawn store owners and after the violin was examined by them and also appraised by an expert, guess what they told him? It's not real. It was an imitation, Stradivarius, a cheap imitation, as a matter of fact, worth around a couple hundred dollars, five to six hundred dollars. Uh, it was produced in the early part of the 1900s. I've actually seen replica Stradivarius in, in Goodwill. We find them, and it does, but actually it says this is a copy of a Stradivarius, because all of a sudden you see Stradivarius, you're like, all right, not looking, you're going to run outside and pay for it. But, and so the guy says to the very disappointed uh, violin owner, he says, just because something has a label on it does not make it real or authentic. Just because something is labeled as such does not make it real. Folks, much of today may carry the label of worship. It doesn't mean it's true worship. And much of today's worship, within that label, there are, it's restricted to certain activities. Much of that label consists of coming to church, and don't get me wrong, this is part of it. But what we're going to look at today is it's definitely not all of it. Much of it consists of coming to church and doing what we're doing here today, right? Singing songs, getting excited, praising our Lord and Savior, and then going outside these four walls and just doing whatever. And then coming back next Sunday and doing the same thing again. Certain activities may be labeled as such, but certain activities may be truly artificial and the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to see, and as we've seen through the Gospel of John, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. And not everyone who claims to be a true worshiper of Jesus is a true worshiper of Jesus. It could be just an act. Today we're going to look at some of the characteristics of true worship, what it is and what it is not. And we see these characteristics displayed by individuals in our text today. I, I, I got to admit, I was, telling, I was telling Sarah when I was on my vacation, I said, I didn't realize how much I've missed, missed being in the Gospel of John after just being out for, you know, two Sundays. And I realized that going through this, this has been, I think, 
the most impactful book that I've gone through in my life in my relationship with Christ. And I think this passage is my favorite because it was so convicting. And everything that I, I say here today, I've said to myself throughout this week. I, you just got to know that. We're going to ask some really, really hard questions about worship. And, and, and here this text is, is so perfect for it. And it looks at the real heart of worship and it looks at the value of Jesus Christ. We're going to ask ourselves four questions. Uh, the first question is, our worship done sparingly? Is it done sparingly? Verses 1 through 3. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has, had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just to set the stage, so John sets its stage and lets us know something that's real important to, to point out. Jesus has a, a one week left. We're in the middle of the book practically, and we're in the last week of the life of Jesus Christ. And, and everything up until this point has been extremely important. All scripture is important. But we have to understand that John's going to be pretty selective in what he's putting in in this final week. And what Jesus says or what is exemplified in this final week is, is real, real important. And he begins here with the heart of worship, what true worship of Jesus Christ and the value of Jesus Christ looks like. So we find him at the home. He's at the home of actually Simon the leper. Uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14 are the, the parallel passages of this passage as well as found in John. We find him at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. And it's kind of interesting of the characters that are surrounding Jesus. We have Simon the leper uh, we have Mary, and we have Martha, and we have Lazarus, who Jesus just raised from the dead. What a great, great picture of what true worship looks like, of the variety of people from all walks of life. And what do they have in common? Jesus Christ has touched their lives. And there they are, they're surrounding him and worshiping him in their own ways, as we're going to talk about in a little bit. It is in this context that we see one of the greatest acts of worship displayed in Scripture. People know about celebrity children, right? If you're a celebrity child, you, you probably have some, some benefits in life, right? So not only, not only is there going to the best private schools and living in fabulous mansions, but there's also what they call the bling. People have heard of the bling. That's whatever you can, you can buy to show that you have some money and your, your child... Uh, is your child and you belong to a celebrity child? Well, there's a lot of bling in, in the celebrity culture. Uh, one daughter, I'm not going to mention the celebrities' names. You can probably look them up and, and figure them out. One daughter, you know, kids got to take baths, right? So this daughter uh, takes a bath in a Swavorsky crystal encrusted tub. Yeah, Swavorsky crystal encrusted. I can't even say that like eight times fast. 
And maybe while she's in there, kids like to play with toys in, in the bathtub, right? So, you know, kids like to play, you know, little dolls and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe she likes to play with her Barbie doll, that Barbie doll right there. How, you know, how much do you think a good Barbie doll's worth to show your love and appreciation for your child? A yeah, hundred bucks, right? Good Barbie doll, something like that. About a thousand dollars. Whew. That's pretty expensive. How about eighty thousand dollars? That is how much that Barbie doll is worth. It is a called a diamond encrusted Barbie doll. That is a Barbie doll that your child is not going to play with, right? That's going to sit in some laser encased glass case. Okay, so maybe you can go buy your your child a Barbie doll. One one celebrity father purchased his daughter what what every child needs their very own island. And that's not a picture of it, but that. That there's an island, he hasn't disclosed the location, and he named it uh, for love of her. He called it Love Island to show her how much he loves her. So, kind of impractical to have an island, right? Cribs, though. Cribs are important, right? Especially if you have twins. Uh, how much would you spend on some cribs? A hundred bucks, right? Five hundred bucks. How about $15,000 per crib? So that's the $30,000 cribs for the, the, the twins there. And I was thinking to myself, man, if I spent $15,000 on a crib, that crib better change that baby in the middle of the night and put it right back to sleep. I don't have to do a thing. This is well worth my time to spend $15,000. So we, we look at these things and we're like, wow, that is extravagant. That is crazy. Uh, one, of the, one of the celebrities said, though, they, they, they gave their kid a gift and they said, it's because I am obsessed with them. So here we have them trying to reveal a love and a passion for their child and showing that through this crazy, costly, expensive gift. Let me ask us something. What do our gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ say about our love for him? Mary's gift is extravagant. It's crazy what she does here. It is extremely costly. She spares absolutely no expense. And I am not saying that we need to go out and buy extravagant gifts and give them to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what was of value to her. It costs her something. It costs her a lot. There are, there are three things that we have to see here in this passage that get, add to the cost of this perfume. Number one, we see that it was pure. So anything with purity goes up in cost, right? If there, you have pure gold, uh, 24 or 20, I can't remember how much pure gold is, uh, it goes up in cost, and you're looking for that purity. Number two it, this, this stuff was really, really hard to obtain. It comes from India. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think they said it comes from the Himalaya, Himalaya mountain area. Uh, so it wasn't easy. It wasn't found everywhere. Uh, and number three, we see that it was one pound of it. There was one pound of it, and she pours it on his feet. And the reaction from the disciples show just how much this was worth. How many people looked ahead and did the math for how much this is going to be equivalent to for today? So Judas tells us, because Judas is the money man, right? He says 300 denarii. 
Uh, and we can't really go to the, the cost of silver for that because it's just, it, we have to go to wages and buying power during this period of time. So this, this gift, if we were to make it equivalent to today, so one denarius was equivalent to a day's wage for a common laborer. So 300, guess what? Annual salary. That is what she poured out on the feet, and the other, other ones have the head, of Jesus Christ. So that is equivalent, and it probably, last time I checked, it's probably gone up, the average salary, because we're just increasing the salary as we continue down this path we're on. It's $40,000 is the average common salary. So that is taking something worth of $40,000 and pouring it on the feet of Jesus Christ. can also have to speculate where she got it from. Because either one or two ways, either she purchased it, she was very, very wealthy, and she purchased it. And she said to herself, what is it that I can buy? What is it that I can give to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to show him how much I love him and to show him his value and his worth? Or it was a family heirloom, which would add to its value even more, that she was willing to part with this that which was precious to her, and give it to him. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is worshiping costing us? Is it costing anything at all? And is that true worship? Is it easy? Are we doing it sparingly? She gives him all of this. And it doesn't stop there. What does she do next? She takes something else of value to her. Her hair. How many women woke up this morning, had an awesome bedhead, and like, it's Mother's Day. And you're like, I'm good to go. You know, right? You're like, yeah, how many, I fixed what hair I have. A little hair, did a little, little product in there. You know? How many women fix their hair today? I'm going to say, well, probably all of you. Looks like it. You all look very nice, you know, all done up. And, and back then, back then, we know it's kind of the same today, but we know that the hair was what? The glory of the woman. That's what it says. So what does she do? She takes her glory, she takes her pride and joy, and she says, I'm going to wipe the dusty feet of Jesus Christ with it. That's humility, that's love, that's passion, that's worship. She does not care what other people think about her. All she wants to do is take this opportunity and express her love and devotion to Jesus Christ. One commentator says it this way, because if we, if we, given what we know in chapter 13, which we're going to cover about the washing of the feet, the washing of the feet was reserved for the lowest slave. At the very least, he says, it signifies the utmost in self-humbling devotion and love, regardless of the cost, the cost of the nard, and regardless of what others may think about her. Because she gets chided, not just by, Judas says it in a different way. The disciples actually chide her for what she does. 
and say, what are you doing? This is a waste. Worship needs to cost us something. And we know that Paul tells us in Romans, what is worship? It's giving of ourselves to him who gave himself, all of him. And an act like this goes beyond the event itself. I love how John says the fragrance filled the room. Filled the room. True worship extends beyond the event, extends beyond the person for all to partake in. And we know that in the other accounts, Jesus says this, this event right here, when the gospel's preached, this event is going to be told. That's the type of worship God remembers. And he's setting her apart as an example. Love and worship are uncaring of the expense. Worship is a heart that is transformed, that expresses itself regardless of the cost. Remember what David said when he was offered the field for free? No, no, no. I'm not going to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which costs me absolutely nothing. You know, I look at this passage and I see myself, whatever's in my bottle, time, uh, passion, resources, talent, whatever it is, money, and I see myself doing this to Jesus. There you go. Um, you don't mind if I just hold on to the rest. I, I kind of need this right now. But here you go. That's for you, Lord. And Lord, I can't get down on, on my, my hands and knees. I can't dirty myself. You know I gotta, I'm a pastor. I got to look presentable. But I want you to know something, Lord. I love you. I love you. Next question. Are we motivated selfishly? Verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. They just ordered a book. It's, it's a good book, but it isn't a good book because it makes me really upset. It's called Preachers and Sneakers. And uh, yeah, I know. It's a good title. It's a catchy title. Written by Ben Kirby. Ask some really, really hard questions about our culture of celebrity churches and celebrity pastors that are going through America. He never meant to become an internet celebrity, but he, he posted one pic. Uh, he noticed a worship leader wearing an $800 pair of shoes, and it kind of caught his attention. And he's like, wow, I kind of want to get on your worship team if that's what you're, 
you know, we pay our worship leaders pretty good, right? Right, Robin? Robin's got nice shoes. Right, so I got, you know, these, I got holes in this puppy, so I'm, I just ordered some new boots, but, and, and he, he was like, wait a second, this doesn't, he's like, what are, what are we, starts asking a question, what are we saying to people about Jesus and, and about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? So his friend got him to post other pictures um, and to do this, and then eventually to this book, to ask all these other questions. So here's two, two pictures of, that he did on his Instagram post. One guy, one face, and I covered their faces. I don't want to, you know, make, yeah, cause any harm to anyone, but uh, $965 for those shoes, and then $5,611. These are pastors, right, preaching from the pulpit, and he also you know, talks about someone wearing a $3,000 Gucci jacket, and, and all these other real expensive stuff. People got upset when he started talking about pastors that they like to follow. He says, we, we have to ask ourselves, with regarding these fancy production values, the self-help styling of sermons, right? So sermons that are just out to make you feel good about yourself, tell you that God wants you to have lots of money, God wants you to be wealthy, God wants you to prosper financially in this world. The preachers posting pics of themselves on beautiful vacations, rubbing shoulders with the Kanye's and the Justin Bieber's of this world. And he says it considers what it, what it means that all of this is packaged on social media for people to consume enviously, and in turn, it encourages believers to do what? emulate that lifestyle. Is that the gospel? The contrast couldn't be more stark in this picture. Here this woman is pouring out everything. Here she's giving something that is extremely expensive and humiliating herself for Jesus. Why are we in it? Not to question their, their motives, but you can't. Actions speak louder than words. What are we saying to the world about worshiping Jesus Christ? Judas. Judas. Judas is pretty brave here, and Judas is in it for Judas. That's why he's in it. And we've seen this throughout the Gospel of John, that there are people who follow Jesus not because they love him, not because he's worthy, because they want something from him besides salvation. They want to get from him. They want to take from him. That's exactly what Judas is doing. I'll tell you what, it looks like that's exactly what some of these churches are doing. Making money. Making money off the name of Jesus Christ. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. 
Judas does something that's absolutely nuts here. It try, I can't believe he said this. Because the other disciples, they say it in a way that seems mean. They're like, why such a waste? Why are you doing this? But I, I wonder why John and the other commentators wonder why John kind of interjects very quickly here about why Judas says this. Because I think Judas said it in a way that came across as really spiritual. That's nuts. And I want to step back for a second because we can kind of get like that. We can look at the ways that other individuals express their love and devotion to Jesus Christ and we can be like, that's a waste. Why are you doing it that way? And we can come across as spiritual in correcting other people and and pointing to something that seems more spiritual, more self-righteous. We have to be really, really careful. This is an individual expression of her love. And it's extravagant. Judas says something and he wants people to think, oh yeah, Judas, wow. You're such a nice guy thinking of the poor. What a great idea, Judas. Yeah, why didn't we use it for the poor? Judas didn't love the poor. Judas didn't love Jesus. Judas loved Judas. We can speculate a lot about uh, what Judas's motivation was, but we know for certain it, part of it was greed. It was greed. He's lining his pockets with the money that's given to the work that Christ is doing. That's crazy. But is it so disconnected? from what we see today? I love the way the NIV puts it. I think the NIV nails it. It says he used to help himself. He used to help himself. We definitely, you know, would not go as this far. In this this church, when I always talk to you guys, you guys are always the exception, but we need to continue to ask ourselves these questions, right? Are we in this sometimes to see what we can get instead of what we can give? You know, there's such a consumer mentality in American Christianity, it's going to devour us from within. Where we look at a church and we say, all right, what do you got for me? You got the right worship? Check. You got the right nursery? Check. You got the right kids program? Okay, check. Check, check. And we look and we're like, what can you give to me? And as soon as that well runs dry, see ya. I'll just move on to the next church. That's backwards. And we look at Christ that way sometimes too. What else have you got for me? I know that you suffered and died. I know that you were humiliated. I know that you were tortured. I know that you were put on a cross for me. But what else you got for me? What else can he give me? What a contrast. What a contrast between these two. You have to remember at one point Jesus says to his disciples, after talking about the servant in the field, and he says, the same goes with you. When you've done everything you were told to do, 
you should say we are unworthy servants. We've only done that which we ought to have done. We sometimes look at what we do. We're like, yeah, we want praise for that. We want... And Jesus is like, look, this is what you need to be doing given who he is. Mary pours herself out in a beautiful act of worship, and Judas challenges it in a hellish act of selfishness. Judas is the anti-worshipper. And Judas is a form of the anti-Christ. Because he's in it for himself. He doesn't love others. He doesn't love Jesus. It's revealed here, and it's revealed in an ultimate degree later on when he betrays our Lord and Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus wasn't his goal. Judas was. Brings us to our next question. Is the worship of Jesus Christ, the true worship of Jesus Christ, our main priority, verses 7 through 8? I had a vacation, that's why I'm getting all revved up here. So I had a wrong week. You guys are like, holy cow, it'll be over with soon. Hey, I had to deal with this all week. So you guys have 40 minutes. All right, seven through eight. Jesus responds to him. I love the way Jesus responds to him. And he says, therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Recent court documents unveiled disciplinary actions against two Los Angeles Police Department officers, which resulted in their firing. So two cops, Los Angeles Police Department, got fired. Former LAPD officers, Louis Lozanzo, Lozano and Eric Mitchell were supposed to be responding to a call about a robbery in progress. But according to the recordings that were obtained from their squad car and their body cameras, they waited 20 minutes before they responded to the call. What were they doing for 20 minutes. Anyone have any guesses? Any guesses? Anyone hear this story? Any guesses? Eating donuts. Eating donuts. Oh, yeah, good guess. Good guess. No, they were the ones doing the robbery. Even better guess. That's a different sermon illustration. Oh, that's, that's actually the closest one. So you know what they were playing? Oh, yeah, you guessed it. Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go. Got to have priorities in life, right? I mean, there you go. I mean, what's more important than catching a Snorlax? Because that's exactly what they were trying to do. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the recordings says, a Snorlax had just popped up on 46 and Lemur Street. We actually saw like uh, a bunch. We were doing youth group outside one day. And uh, do you guys remember that? And, and all the cars pulled in. You remember that? We were like all ready for a big gang fight. We are like West Side Story. We are like, yeah, come on. Let's go. And all these cars pour in. We had no idea what's going on. Patrick's grabbing bats and putting them behind his back. And 
all these cars pull in, and then I see them on their phone, and get that's exactly what they were doing. Something, a Snorlax must have popped up in Galilee's parking lot. But that's what they were doing, these two cops, instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing, and especially even if they weren't cops, right? And if they knew about a robbery, what's more important? So the, the department said playing Pokemon Go showed complete disregard for the community, wasted resources, violated public trust, you think, and was unprofessional and embarrassing to the department. That You feel safe now? I, hey, it's California, right? I mean, come on. That doesn't happen here in Maine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> playing, what do priorities do? What do priorities do? When we have priorities, then we'll seize opportunities to fulfill those priorities, won't we? That's what these cops did. They had a priority. It wasn't helping out the person in need. What does Mary do here? Mary has a priority. Her number one priority is the worship of Jesus Christ. And because of that priority, she seizes this opportunity to show that love, to express that worship, to express that value. Do you think Mary cares about the poor? Absolutely. Are Christians supposed to care about the poor? Absolutely. Is that our priority? No. Nope. Our priority is Jesus Christ and His gospel and the worship of Him. That's our priority. Everything else, everything else needs to be put aside in order to accomplish that priority. And we can do those things as we reach that, try to reach that goal. That is part of it, hands down. But that is not the main focus. And Jesus is saying something very, very important here. He's saying, look, the, the poor are always there. You always have an opportunity she has this opportunity here and now, and she takes the opportunity, and we know that it's a God-ordained opportunity because what he says about his burial. She doesn't know he's doing that, and that translation is, is it's kind of hard to understand. It's not let her keep it. Uh, it's it maybe more along the lines that she kept it for the anointing of his burial. She doesn't know she's doing that, and it's interesting because they would spend lavishly on the burial, but not when people were alive. And that's what she does here. She seizes the opportunity to worship Him. Folks, one of the biggest things that's happened in mainline denomination, denominational Christianities, guess what? They've traded this. They've traded the gospel of Jesus Christ for a social gospel. That's not what the church is about. It's part of it. Hands down, we are to take care of the poor, we are to take care of the oppressed, we are to minister to the needs of other people, but if we only minister to their physical needs and forget their spiritual one, we failed. John Piper says it very, very correctly. He says, worship, I mean, he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's why missions exist. Because there are people who are not worshiping Jesus Christ.
the poor will always be there. And, and I'll say maybe now, right, so if we have the right priority, and maybe now there's, a, there's an opportunity for you to express your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and to express worship of Him. Seize that opportunity now. Seize it. Take hold of it. Because guess what? It might not be there tomorrow. Don't keep putting things off and saying, oh, I'm going to have a chance. I'm going to have a chance. So it helps us in our everyday choices. If my priority in life is this, then I'm going to take the opportunities that God gives me to bring glory to Him and to use what He's given me to show that worship to take what He's given me, whatever it is, in every aspect of my life. And I'll say also that the life itself is one great big what? Opportunity, isn't it? How are we using it? How are we using it? Because guess what? It's not going to last. You and I have this period of time redeemed, saved by Christ to show His worth to the world. How are we doing that? Or are we doing this? How are we using our time? How are we using our energy? How are we using our passions, our resources, our gifts and our talents? And like I said, I... I had asked myself this question over and over and over again this week. I don't know why I like this passage the most. It made me feel the worst. We have to ask ourselves these questions. We may not have tomorrow. We might not have it. Now's the time. I try to do that with my, my family, you know, where I look, and I'm getting better at it. I don't always do it. Where I would look, and if something comes up, or, you know, they ask me to do something, and I say to myself, you know what? I have this moment to serve them, and I'm going to use this moment to do that because I don't know how long it's going to last. And when the worst thing that we can do, the worst thing to have is regret, folks, right? You can't, can't deal. Regret's hard. We look back and we look back and we're like, man, I just wish I would have taken that, that moment. I wish I would have done that at that time. I kind of regret that. God's helping us, preventing us from having that. I just love the way she did this. She doesn't blink an eye. And I, I think this was real intentional because there was another event in the life of Christ where the woman comes in and she does what? Wipes his feet with her hair and her tears, the prostitute. And Jesus turns to the Pharisee who said something. And he's like, look, she did this. You haven't done a thing for me. And if she was there or heard of that story, she's like, I am not going to let this happen again. This is, I'm going to take care of this one. I'm going to do it this time. And she pours out her love like that. $40,000 worth of it, according to our economy. 
And we have no idea what an act like that will do for folks who are watching. Brings us to our next point. Is our worship causing a frenzy? Is it causing a frenzy? Verses 9 through 11. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. I wanted to add this final point on. It takes a little break, but it's because Lazarus is part of this party at Simon's house. Uh, So you have these characters that are all around Jesus, Lazarus being one of them. You have Simon, you have Martha, and you have Mary, and you have Lazarus. And they're all worshiping in some form or fashion in their own way, right? So you have Simon's opened up his home to the Lord Jesus, and you have have Martha who has learned how to serve now, right, in the proper way after Jesus uh, taught her. And you have Mary at his feet and anointing his feet. And then you have Lazarus. He's just kind of reclining. He's kind of hanging out with Jesus, right? But what's he doing? He's following Jesus, he's with him, he's fellowshipping with Jesus, but he's, he's living out his resurrected life. Lazarus is resurrected. Part of our worship is living out our resurrected life with Jesus. That's what it's all about. And we, can, we know Lazarus has been physically resurrected, but also he's following the Lord, and we could say that he has been spiritually resurrected. Both... Both, he's causing a frenzy in in two ways, for good and for bad. Folks, people who have been resurrected by Christ should cause a commotion in this world, should do exactly what Lazarus is doing right here. It's kind of funny. I feel really bad for Lazarus. It's it's kind of humorous when you think about it, right? Because he's like, oh man, hey, do you know they want to kill you? And Lazarus is like, not again, you know? He's, you know, he's got, Lazarus got a t-shirt, it's got a grave on it, and he's like, been there, done that. We got this t-shirt. And he's, he's like, I, I would say to the Pharisees, you better kill Jesus first, because if you don't, he's just going to keep raising Lazarus back up. You're going to deal with that problem over and over and over and over again. Poor Lazarus, right? But, but look at what happens, though. So I, I love this, because there are two resurrected results from the life of Lazarus. Two, two of them. Number one, they just want to kill you. So number one, people are going to hate us. If we are living our resurrected life, people are going to repel some people. They're going to get jealous because we're not worshiping them or we're not worshiping the gods that they want us to worship. They're going to disagree with us. But notice Lazarus is doing the same thing now that Jesus was doing earlier. Lazarus has become a threat. Remember we talked about that? Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to the Pharisees. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their way of life. And now, because Lazarus is living, he's a threat too. And they're like, we're just going to take him out. That's what we need to do. And I love how, how first you had Christ doing it, and now you have someone who has been transformed by Jesus doing it. 
That's true worship. Living out a resurrected life so much so that people would like to harm us because we're a threat to their power. We're a threat to their gods. We're a threat to their way of life. That's why they want to take him out because Lazarus is pulling people away from them. And that's the second thing that happens. People believe. People believe. I, I hope and pray, and I, I want this to be, I love that last verse, because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. I want that to be said of me. Because on account of him, people were believing in Jesus. It's really, really interesting. Pastor Dave just wrote a really, really good blog. I don't know if you've read it. It's a great blog about uh, the church and what COVID did and what it kind of exposed in, in the church. And he talks about this attractional methodology, attracting people, attracting the world to our churches making it look real appealing, you know, giving people what they want, bringing people in, having this seeker-sensitive mentality. And he, he says that people aren't coming back because it was shallow, because it wasn't real. And, and that's not the methodology of the church. What's the methodology of the church right here? What's the attraction? The attraction isn't our, our spectacular worship services. The attraction... Isn't my, my, my $1,000 pair of shoes and how nicely I'm dressed? The attraction isn't our programs. The attraction it should be our lives. That's what the attraction should be. Living out a resurrected life so people are like scratching their heads. What's with you? What happened? Who did that to you? That's the attraction. Not all the glitz and glamour, but holiness. Lives that have been touched and transformed by someone who is of absolute, ridiculous amount of value and worth. And we have to ask ourselves the final question. And looking at all of this, does our worship reflect His worth? Does it say how much we value Him and how much His true value is? Is it costing us anything? There is so much that this world can offer as wasteful distractions to what should be our main goal. What do we say about our Lord by the way that we worship Him? Are we passionate for Him? Do we not care what others think? Are we giving our best? Are we giving what's left? Are we thinking of what we can get 
or asking what we can give? Is he our number one priority? Are we living lives that are attracting others to him? Do we show that he is absolutely incomparable to anything or anyone this world has to offer? Father, Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. Lord, we love to praise you. We love to sing about you and to sing to you. Lord, we know that is acceptable. If our hearts are right with you. We know that is definitely part of it, Lord, to sing your praises in this world. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've blessed this church. We thank you for the programs that we have. But Lord, as we look at this text today, my prayer for every single one of us, myself included, help us to worship like this. Help us not to hold anything back. Help us to give you our all and help the world to see that there is no one greater than you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.